Welcome everybody, glad you're here. Have your, find your seat and uh, we're gonna be diving back into our series in First and Second Kings and Second Chronicles. We finished First Kings and the first half of Second Chronicles, actually over half, uh, and we are now in Second Kings. And uh, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Second Kings chapter five uh, is where we find ourselves. Remember, we're in the midst of our series called In the Lord's Sight. The reason we call it In the Lord's Sight is because First Kings, Second Kings, and Second Chronicles, over and over again, this term In the Lord's Eyes or In the Lord's Sight is used for the prophets and for the kings and their lives that they lived. And it's like, well, this king did what was right in the Lord's sight. This prophet did what was right in the Lord's sight or what was evil in the Lord's sight. And you see that like 70 some times through these books. Over and over again, it's this idea that God is watching, God sees, and he's looking at what our response will be to him given our life situation. Most of you here will not be kings. Most of you will probably not be prophets, okay? But the Bible says that if we know Jesus, we've been anointed to be prophets, priests, and kings of his in whatever circles we walk on on the earth, and that we should strive to be right in the Lord's sight, right? To, to do what is right in the Lord's sight. Right now, just as our nation is split, the nation of Israel is split. There's a northern and a southern kingdom. Okay, the split happened after Solomon. They didn't follow God. God said this would happen. If they didn't, they didn't. The kingdom split. The northern kingdom took 10 of the 12 original tribes that come from the sons of Jacob in the Old Testament. The southern kingdom had Judah and Benjamin. Benjamin was kind of left over. If you know the story of Benjamin, they were kind of wiped out and then rebuilt. And so you have two, northern and southern. The northern kingdom never had, not once, a single king who did what was right in the Lord's sight in almost 200 years of their existence. Not once. I mean, they survived 200 years, but never had anyone who did what was right. And see, we think if we're surviving, if generation after generation is still going, then we must be right. We must be doing things right. No, God's just really gracious and patient really gracious and patient with us. And he sent prophet after prophet to the northern kingdom and to the southern kingdom. That's where we get Jeremiah, Isaiah, Obadiah, Micah, all the prophets, almost all of them were prophesying during this period or right after this period, trying to warn the people that your civil war, you're being torn apart. There is no solution to this outside of surrendering to me and doing what I say is right according to my word. That is a really good word for us today. We have a country that is incredibly divided. And we can talk about all the things we need to do and everything else, but the question we've got to really come down to as believers is are we going to do what's right in the Lord's sight and believe him for whatever happens because there were people that did what was right in the northern kingdom. We're going to read about a prophet today who lived in the northern kingdom and he did what was right. But he suffered with them. He suffered in the midst of it. He had to stay in that mess and continue to minister and do what was right even when everyone around him was doing what was wrong and telling him not to do what was right. And that's where we find ourselves. Here's the split of the kingdom. You can see just in terms of geography, if I can get it to click, 
it's not clicking. Um, here's the split, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Israel, kind of off to the side. You've got the southern kingdom of Judah. God told his people he wanted them to worship in Jerusalem. That was where they were going to be. He asked the northern kingdom to let them worship in Jerusalem. And instead, every northern king fought to prevent the people from going to Jerusalem to worship. Because every time they would go to Jerusalem to worship, you would know what would happen? They would stay. They wouldn't want to go back. Because they'd actually see the glory and beauty and awesomeness of God and say, I don't want to go back to that mess. Or they would come back and then cause a stink in their communities. Because they would come back and be like, we're not doing it right. We're not worshiping God the way we should. We've made idols. This is not the right way to do it. And then they would be persecuted. They would be punished. They would they'd have a mess on their hands. And so the northern king was like, I don't want that mess. We've established our way of doing things. We've established our way of worship and our idols. I don't want anybody traveling to hear the truth about who God is. Very similar to where we're at today. So we pick back up the story, and here's the question you're going to see as we walk through this story today. The question is, who do we go to? Who do we go to? When you find yourself in a mess, like you find yourself in this civil war, this split, you want to go worship, but it's dangerous to even travel to get to go worship. There's like a DMZ zone between the north and the south, and you're trying to get to where God wants you to be, but you can't be there. What do you do? Who do you go to when you live in the northern kingdom? Because we're going to find that this is the prophet Elisha who lived in the northern kingdom. He's prophesying to the northern kingdom. He's doing his work in a wicked kingdom. And it's like, who do we go to? Where do we go? Because it's really difficult. We can't just travel freely as we should. And Elisha is calling the people to go to God. And in this story, as we see today... It's amazing because we see even other nations are turning to God. Even in the midst of the wickedness, even in the midst of the mess, other nations, other people are seeing that their gods, their idols are a mess. Their idols can't deliver on anything. And so they're turning away from that and to God while God's people are not turning to him. Think about that. That's what's happening around the world today. There are revivals breaking out in places like Iran. There is an Iranian revival happening right now. You won't hear about it. It's all underground. It's all house churches. If they're found out, they're murdered. And it's not stopping the gospel. And it's not American missionaries who are going there because we got all the answers and we're sharing because we're so smart and we're bringing the Western church and Western ideals to them. It's not. It's a groundswell from the swell like up of people that are sick of their God. They're sick of the religion that doesn't deliver and they're crying out to the God of the universe and God is giving them dreams. They're coming to know him. It's incredible what's happening. Meanwhile, in our nation, silence. We are losing more and more people every year to idolatry, statistics say. The young people raised in the church are turning from God and never coming back. And it's going up, and it's been going up since the 60s. We are not making ground. While the rest of the world is risking their lives to repent and worship God in secret. That's, not, that's on us. And that's exactly where we find ourselves 
in this amazing story. And we'll see this morning, this story is one that Jesus actually refers to in his preaching. This is a story that Jesus uses to try to get the people who won't see who he is. They won't surrender their lives. They won't recognize what he's asking them to do and that he is the Messiah, but he's not bringing the message they want that he's going to make them great and deliver them and overthrow the Romans and give them all the wonderful things they want. And Jesus actually uses this very story. So let's dive in. Chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Naaman, commander of the army for the king of Aram, was a great man in his master's sight and highly regarded because through him, look at this, the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was a brave warrior, but he had a skin disease. How would you like it if the Lord gave victory to Russia? After we've poured all this money into Ukraine, all these billions, we're doing the right thing, and the Lord's like, no, they win. I'm tired of your pride. I'm tired of thinking you can just run around the world and make people do whatever you want. You lose. This is what was happening. The Lord was literally using another nation, which he does all the time in Scripture. He uses other nations all the time to humble his people. It is all the way through constant. Aram is actually a descendant of Noah. I mean, we all are, but specifically, they trace their lineage back. So actually, by God giving them favor, he was fulfilling his promise to Noah that he would make all of his sons a great nation. God's not actually breaking his word. He's actually keeping his word by allowing Aram to win. And this guy, Naaman, is a guy we'll see in a moment that even though he's winning, he's discontent. He's got an issue in his life that he can't get rid of, that he's tried all of his idols, all of his gods, everything and anything under the sun. He has tried to get rid of this skin disease that he has, probably leprosy, we don't know, and he cannot get rid of it. And remember, in the Old Testament, if you had a skin disease, you were to be put outside the camp. You were to be taken care of. You were to be loved. You were to be served and all of those things, but you were not to come in and contaminate the camp. You had to recognize when you were ill and you had to separate yourself and trust yourself unto God and what he would do and actually trust yourself to his people to take care of you. That's Old Testament. Like when plague was spreading all over Europe, they didn't practice this because they didn't read the Old Testament because the church was in charge of the Bible. It was in Latin and most people couldn't read. You don't know that. You don't know your history. That's actually historical fact. The church actually killed almost all the Jewish Germans. The Catholic church almost slaughtered all the Jewish Germans, or German Jews. You want to know why? Because they weren't getting plague like everyone else was, and they blamed them for giving them the plague and putting a hex on them and killed them instead of asking them, why aren't you getting the plague? We're Jews. We follow the Old Testament law. And the Old Testament law protects us in the land. And the Old Testament law says that if someone's sick, you separate them till they're well. The Old Testament law says you don't poop and dump it out your window into the street. 
you dig a hole and you bury it. And in all the cities where the plagues were breaking out, they had chamber pots. The Jews are like, would you like to know why we aren't getting plagued? No. We're Christians. We got the answer. We got Jesus. You shut up. This is the same story over and over again. We won't even read our Bible. We don't know what it says. While lost people are interested in God, we don't even care what he has to say. How many of you have read through your Old Testament all the way? Don't raise your hand. Just think about that. Have you ever read the whole book? This week, this week, I found out that one of our seminaries, one of our seminaries, in their Old Testament, half of an Old Testament class, they don't even do a full Old Testament class. They do two halves because they can't get it all in in time. They don't even require in the syllabus for you to read the entire half of the Old Testament that, they're, that you're supposed to be studying and they test you over. That is ridiculous. I'm sorry. That's just wrong. What are you reading then? What are you, what are you being tested over? The book or like what I think about the book? What the, what the professor thinks? Read the book. Like I, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, do I write someone? I don't know. They won't listen to me. But that's, I mean, it's frustrating. But I know this. Our seminaries are some of the most biblical in the world. So it panics me when I think about the other seminaries. Because ours are actually try to really focus on scripture and the Bible. And, and they don't even require the reading in the syllabus. I mean, can you imagine taking a class on the Ming Dynasty and not having to read any of the Ming, like, not reading their documents? Now, they are reading some, don't get me wrong, portions, but they're picking and choosing the portions, which is what we've been taught to do. You pick and choose the parts of the Bible you want to read, you want to emphasize, you want to speak to, and you leave the controversial ones, you leave those to the side because you've got a theological persuasion that you need people to believe so that they'll go out and teach your theological persuasion all over the world the way you want it taught. How about we read the whole book? Because if you do, dude, it'll mess with you. And that's exactly what happens to Naaman. Look. It says, Aram had gone on raids and brought back from the land of Israel a young girl who served Naaman's wife. This is a slave girl. And it says, she said to her mistress, if only my master would go to the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his skin disease. So Naaman went and told his master what the girl from the land of Israel had said. His master is the king of Aram. He's the chief general. He went and told the king of Aram, who's been fighting against Israel, winning wars against Israel, taking land from Israel. He has the boldness to go and say, our gods stink. I would like to go to the God of Israel to find out if he can cure me. That's some boldness to put himself out there like that, to basically say, yeah, you'll see in a minute. Your God I keep going to the temple with you for doesn't work. And he's willing to go. And then he has to say, well, who told you that? Oh, it's some slave girl. So you're a commander of an army who's kicking like everybody's rear end right now. You, you are commanding the army that's on top in the world right now. And you're listening to a slave girl? You think that maybe you're not going to be listened to because of your position? Don't believe that. This slave girl believed God even though she was in an awful position. 
even though she was in slavery against her will, she was, she was stuck in this position, she never stopped giving honor and glory and hope to others in her God because her God could deliver. Man, what incredible faith this is. I mean, this is just amazing when you think about it. It goes on in Ephesians. Ephesians 6, 5 says, Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Don't work only while being watched in order to please men, but as slaves of Christ. Do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters? Treat your slaves the same way without threatening them because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with God. God does what God wants to do. You can't manipulate his favor and get a little bit more favor than the next guy. It's not how it works. God doesn't work on works. And then he says, Paul says in the New Testament, finally be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength because you're going to need it, because your strength's going to run out. See, if you practice this kind of a life where you practice a life of surrender, your strength is going to run out. It is. If you keep serving and keep serving and giving, your strength is going to run out. You're going to get tired and you're not going to do it anymore, especially when everybody else around you is saying being a slave is stupid. You should run away. You should get away. You should get. Listen, I recognize that what we did to enslave people in our country was incredibly, absolutely, positively wicked. Biblical slavery was different, you ready for this, than our slavery. In biblical slavery, there was a year of Jubilee, and all the slaves would be set free in the year of Jubilee if you knew God. Wow, what an incentive to believe in God and participate in the sacrifices of God and even fake that you believe in God because when the year of Jubilee comes along, you get set free. You know how many times the people of God practiced a year of Jubilee that we have record of? Zero. Not once. Not once would they give up their money. Would they give up their stuff? Not once. It wouldn't do it because it's too valuable. And I got to do, I got to keep, I got to build, I got to build, I got to prove, I got to show, I got to. What happened to the year of Jubilee where everybody's land that God allowed, allotted was given back? Where people were set free that you knew that there was a purpose to your slavery because there was an end coming. See, Paul is writing in Ephesians. He's saying there is a purpose to the position that God has you in. Live it out. It doesn't mean you don't tell the truth about that position. It doesn't mean you say, hey, you shouldn't beat people. You shouldn't do that. It doesn't mean you don't stand up for your fellow slave, your fellow man, your fellow employee or worker. It doesn't mean you don't stand up. It just means like Naaman, you're willing to take the consequences of telling your king your gods stink. It's It's there. And Paul says, look, masters should treat them. Obviously, Naaman treated this slave girl well. Otherwise, she would have laughed at him. She would have been like, yeah, you got a skin disease. Take that, you big beater. I hope you get worse skin disease. I hope you kill over and die. That, listen, that could have easily been her heart if Naaman was a wicked man. But Naaman obviously was a man who treated people well. Which is why, here's the deal, I wonder myself, as wicked as the northern kingdom was, I wonder, 
I wonder if she wasn't better off in Aaron. The northern kingdom of Israel is so wicked and so awful that I wonder if she thought, man, I got out of there. I'm just happy to be out of that place. I watched the show The Sound of Freedom this week, the movie The Sound of Freedom. It's talking about right now we have more slaves in the world than the entire African slave trade combined. Currently. There are more slaves in the world. There are over 2 million children being sex trafficked right now. And the number one consumer of that is us, the United States of America. The number one consumer of everything that funnels human trafficking and that funnels specifically children being abducted and sold into slavery for sex is us. The second offender is Europe. We're at the top. There are more kids being smuggled into the United States for sex trafficking than almost anywhere else in the world. And we don't talk about it. We don't think about it. We don't want to deal with it. And Elisha the prophet has been preaching before him, Elijah the prophet preaching and saying, we need to deal with this stuff. This whole peace, we're all good, it's all wonderful. God wants you to be rich and famous and wealthy and what? It's got to stop. There are people perishing because we just want more for ourselves. Every time I get out my phone, I think about the fact, I wonder how many children mined for my lithium and cobalt so I can have this device. Because most of the devices that we have and the batteries that are produced are produced by slave labor around the world. And we don't want to talk about it. Because we're solving a bigger problem, climate change. I don't know if it's real or not. I really don't care. I just know that there are kids that are dying and getting cancer because they're ingesting cobalt fumes and lithium and everything else so that I can solve some problem that might happen in 100 years. And we won't talk about it. We won't deal with it. We won't pray about it. We won't weep over it. I wept in that theater when I saw that movie. My heart broke. This is my nation. Elisha's heart is broken. This slave girl's probably looking and saying, I'm in a better spot here than I was there. She was probably treated more like a slave in the northern kingdom than she is as an actual slave in Aram by this guy who cares about her then she cares back, which is what Ephesians 6 says. Care for one another. He goes on and says this. Therefore, he says, the king of Aram said, go, and I will send a letter with you to the king of Israel. He brought the letter to the king of Israel and read it. When this letter comes to you, note that I have sent you my servant Naaman for your cure for you to cure him of his skin disease. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and asked, ready for this? Am I God killing and giving life that this man, this other king, expects me to cure a man of a skin disease? 
Think it over and you will see that he is only picking a fight with me. The king of Israel, in the midst of having an opportunity to go to his God, who do we go to? This slave girl had been going to her God in the midst of her problems. Naaman was willing to go to the God of Israel away from his in these problems. The king of Israel isn't willing to go to God. He just looks at himself and his circumstances and goes, oh, he just wants to kill me. He wants to say, see, I sent my best commander to you and you didn't take care of it. Now we're coming after you. All he can think about is himself. Am I a God? How am I going to do this? Me, 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 me. He doesn't even say, wow, this could be an opportunity for me to go talk to Elisha or some of the other prophets and see if we could heal this man and send him back and maybe, maybe don't believe in the God of Israel. He doesn't even ask the question. He just sees it as a problem. He thinks it's a trap. You see, the king of Israel in the midst of God offering up something incredible has an emotional external response that doesn't involve praying, he doesn't involve seeking, and he doesn't involve getting anyone's counsel. Sound familiar? How many times do we have some kind of emotional response to a circumstance or to life situations or things that happen to us and we don't pray, we don't seek the Lord, and we don't seek the counsel of others or the counsel of his word? We just rip our clothes and throw a fit. It's the same scenario. He goes on and says, When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel tore his clothes, he sent a message to the king. I love this. Hey, why'd you take your clothes? Like, why are you throwing a fit? Have you ever done that with your kids? Like, they're, ah, ah, and they're like, why, why are you throwing a fit? Okay, and you just walk out. Like, it's fine. Just stay there. And you just walk away. Like, just, because, because literally you wouldn't let them hit, take a baseball bat and hit their sibling in the head. So you took the baseball bat from them, and now they're throwing a fit on the floor because you took their baseball bat so they couldn't hit their sibling in the head. They're like, ah, they're like, I'm not going to let that happen. And you just walk away with the bat, and they're so mad at you. How dare you interrupt my world? I was controlling my world right now. This was going great. I was winning. And you took it away. Same scenario. Elisha's like, I'm a prophet. Elijah and I have done all kinds of miracles. We've split rivers. We've called fire down from heaven. Dead people have come back to life. We've had so many different miracles. And when you have the opportunity to actually seek the Lord, to go to him, to come to me as the prophet or to the pastor or to the church, what do you do? You just throw a fit. He goes on. He says, have him come to me and he will know there is a prophet in Israel. I love this. He goes, he, he now knows there's no king in Israel worth their salt. He now knows there's no king in Israel. It's a fake kingdom. It's a fake king in, in the northern kingdom. The real king's in the southern kingdom. The fake king lives in, he gets that now. But you know what? He's going to know that there's a prophet in Israel. That God is still speaking in Israel. And then it says, So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots, and stood at the door of Elijah's house. Now go back to the king of Israel, and it makes more sense why he threw a fit. Naaman came with his horses and chariots, and Israel is in a, in a mess right now. They've been defeated multiple times. All their, their good stuff has been stolen, taken over, taken by other nations. They're left with the leftover shields, the leftover swords they have, all that kind of stuff. Now it makes sense. When Naaman's coming with all this might, all the king of Israel can see is a problem instead of an opportunity. 
Elisha sees an opportunity instead of a problem. Look at what happens. It goes on. Then Elisha sent him a messenger. Elisha doesn't even go out himself. Who said, go wash seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be clean. But Naaman got angry. He throws a fit. Naaman got angry and left saying, I was telling myself anytime, we've talked about this before, anytime you get to a place where you're talking to yourself, it's probably not good. You're not going to the right person. Who do you go to when you need help? Don't talk to yourself. You've already failed. Go to someone else. Okay? You've already messed yourself up. Don't talk to yourself. Talk to God. Talk to a friend. Talk to anyone, not yourself. And here Naaman goes. He starts talking to himself. He will surely come out and stand and call on the name of Yahweh his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure the skin disease. Aren't Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in one of them and be clean? So he turned and left in a rage. This story should not sound unfamiliar to you in your life. Because this is exactly what we do with God. He gives us a very simple thing we need to be doing. And then when things don't work out the way we planned, the way we thought it should, for the reason we came, the reason we did it, we leave in a rage, we throw a fit, and we get mad. And we say, God, why don't you show up and give me you in a vision? I can't listen to your messengers, other Christians, the Bible, and all the messengers who wrote this. I can't listen to pastors. No, 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 no. I need to hear directly from God, directly from the prophet. And if I don't hear from him, I'm not listening. Do you see how the Bible, like, repeats it? Like, the Bible makes so much sense. I was telling... The, the, our Slack group of college students this week. Factually, the Bible cannot be argued with if you argue with it scientifically and factually like a courtroom. You cannot argue with the Bible. All the arguments of Scripture come from emotion. We don't get the emotion we want. We don't get the circumstances we want. So then we attack the Scripture. If you actually look at the probability of the Scripture the way it is, how it's been translated, how it's been handed down, its accuracy, multiple authors, multiple continents, multiple prophecies fulfilled, you have a better chance of right now literally sitting there and spontaneously igniting and burning up than you do probability-wise, from scientific math and statistics, that the Bible is not true. Literally, you should be more concerned that you are going to spontaneously combust today, okay, than the Bible not being true. Because there's actually a better odd that that would happen with the radiation in the world and the problems we have and everything else. It's a better, better chance that you're going to spontaneously combust today. A scientist actually came to Christ. I posted a video to this college feed. That's how he came to Christ. He actually did the probability of the two things, and he said, i got to believe the Bible. That's how he came to faith. But see, we don't do that. We as Christians, we believe the Bible, and then when we have emotions and circumstances, Naaman, king of Israel, throw up our hands. We're mad. We're screaming. We're raging because we aren't getting what we want. We're the two-year-old laying on the floor. It's like... I'm still the parent, you're too. Like, it's exactly what Naaman does. Now watch this. 
Because even though you rage, even though you may throw a fit and do this, Naaman proves that he's still got some humility. Watch what happens. But his servants approached and said to him, if your boss was in a rage and he is a military commander, which means he's really good with a sword, he's a really good soldier, would you confront him in the midst of his rage? These servants knew they could confront their boss in the midst even of his rage and he would still respond rightly. And they cared more about their master and more about him than they did their own safety. And they go to him and they love him and they approach and they said, my father, they call him father, not master. Boy, I wish more people would call God that. They say, you're like a father to us. You've been so good. If the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you have done it? How much more should you do it when he tells you, wash and be clean? In other words, Naaman was expecting God to do some great big thing, to fix some big show. And they're like, he just asked you to do it. And the reason Naaman was so mad, think about it. He's probably been like, I have washed so many times. I have tried to scrub this off with every product in the world. I bought every essential oil. I've tried every diet. I've tried it all. It's not coming off. I've went to every body of water I can find, right? I've gone to every God I can find and prayed and washed with their holy water, and I'm still not clean. And then this Israelite doesn't even come out himself. Oh, no, no, no. He just sends a messenger to me to come out and say, yeah, just go, go wash in the Jordan River. Like, your river's better than all the other rivers. Like, water's water. It's H2O. It's like, really? See, Elisha is asking Naaman to do something that he needs to do by faith, not by fact. Will you obey me by faith? Will you even believe the messenger I send instead of you have to hear directly from God or I'm not going to do it? How do we reach anyone for Jesus? Oh, that's right. We're his messengers. Confident to go to him. Confident to go to others. Confident to call people to say, Jesus can wash you and make you clean. And there is no other way. There is no other river that will save you. There's no other God that will save you. There is one way. You go to the Jordan. You go to Jesus and you get washed. No other option. And don't be surprised if people leave in rage. Because that's what we do when God asks us to do very simple things. Because we want to show, we want to prove, we want to big, we want... God's like, just obey me. Just, just obey. He goes on and says this. So Naaman went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times. I don't know about you, but when I'm confronted and I'm in the midst of a rage, my response is not to immediately obey the person that told me I'm in a rage and I'm wrong and I need to do something different. My immediate response is to defend myself, to leave that room, to go pray about it and deal with myself for a while, then go. Naaman obeys his servants. Yeah, you're right, I'm an idiot. And he just goes and does it. And then it says, according to the command of the man of God. They call Elisha a man of God. They recognize this is a man of God. 
Then his skin was restored and became like the skin of a small boy, and he was clean. Then Naaman and his whole company went back to the man of God, stood before him, and declared, I know there's no God in the whole world except in Israel. Israel is full of idols right now. They have created Dan, and they have created um, the other, uh, what's the other one? Bethel, thank you, I want to say Beersheba. Dan and Bethel as two places for two golden calves to reside to represent God. And Naaman recognizes, you guys don't see God anywhere, I see God. Even in the midst of all this idolatry, he's still here. He is still trying to get your attention. He is still working. Don't give up. And then look at this. It says, Naaman and his whole company went back And he said, therefore, please accept a gift from your servant. This guy has been kicking the rear end of the Israelites. This guy commands one of the strongest armies of the world in this moment. And he literally says, I now understand that you have authority over me because only you could do what no one else could do. And he places himself under the authority of Elisha. I'm your servant. I'm done. I don't know what to do now because God's real and I got to go back to my nation and I don't, I, this is going to be messy. And you're my man, not my God, not my Israel or the God of Aram. I, 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 I'm done. And then it says, look at this. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives, I stand before him. I've got my merch and my books over on the table for you to buy. Because I'm the prophet Elisha and my merch and my books need to be sold so that we can generate a profit for the prophets here so that we can go out and be the prophets of God in the world. So here's my merch, here's our, you you got, yeah, just buy up. Have Have all your army, buy up. Buy up the merch. Is that offensive? I meant for it to be. I'm not saying it's wrong. But Elisha's like, I don't want anything from you. Freely I received and freely I give. Now you freely go give. Should be the mantra of our day. And instead, everybody's trying to monetize Christianity. Everyone. You think they're trying to monetize Christianity in Iran right now? They can't. They can't even publicize they meet publicly. They can't monetize anything. And here we just constantly monetize the church instead of just giving and just giving and giving. Like I, Elisha's like, nope. Naaman urged him. He said, I'm not going to accept it. Naaman urged him to accept it, but he refused. <laughs> no. Naaman, it's, it's, you ready for this? It's grace, Naaman. It's grace. There's nothing you did to earn this. Nothing you did in the past to store up all your wealth. There's nothing you earned that you can now make up for what you've gotten. There's no equal deal here. It's just the grace of God given to you, someone that doesn't, that doubts who God is, that flies off and rain. But God sees you. You came to him and he showed up. There's no other exchange that needs to be made. Naaman, it's grace. It's a free gift. Jesus, in Luke chapter 7, says this, a centurion slave 
who was highly valued by him, the centurion being a Roman soldier of a large group, was sick and about to die. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he came to the Jewish elders, or he sent some Jewish elders to Jesus requesting him to come and save the life of his slave. When they reached Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy for you to grant this. Because he loves our nation and he has built us a synagogue. Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to tell Jesus, Lord, don't trouble yourself to even come, since I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. This centurion knew that a priest or a rabbi who came into a Gentile's home was considered unclean by law, and he did not want to make Jesus unclean. He didn't want to put Jesus in his position where he was at a war with the religious leaders. He was like, look, I'm not trying to cause any fuss. I've just tried everything else to save my slave. I love him. I, would you help, please? It goes on and says, that is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. See, Naaman had to come to a place where he didn't even consider himself worthy that he would just go bathe in the Jordan. The centurion recognized, I'm not, I built a synagogue, I've done all this stuff. None of that proves anything. None of that proves anything. I am not worthy to even ask you to do this, but I've got no other option. Then he said, but if you say the word and my servant will be cured. I understand who you are. I understand the power you have. And if you just speak, I know it'll happen. Look at what he goes on to say. He says, for I too am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Jesus heard this, look at this, and was amazed at him. And turning to the entire crowd following him, this would have been a large crowd at this point because he hadn't begun giving the hard teachings where people started leaving because he started teaching the hard teachings yet. Okay? He was still popular at this point. And then it says, he looked at these Jewish people, Jewish people that were enslaved by the Romans, that had been enslaved by nations previously, that were constantly being persecuted, and he says... I tell you, I have not found so great a faith even in Israel. Well, that's a little offensive. What have I been doing with my whole life that you think he's great? I've been serving God my whole life, and, and now you're upset. Like, what? What was the point of me serving then if you don't think I'm great? If you don't think my faith is great? See, if you have that attitude, which I sometimes do, it means you've been serving for all the wrong reasons. Because you're not serving because you think God is great and he's worthy of service and you are his slave. You've been serving because you want to get something. And you get exposed every time. This centurion saying, I, I, I just, please help. Jesus heard this and then he said, when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. And there's no record of Jesus ever meeting the centurion. The centurion never feeling like I have to meet Jesus personally. Never happened. Then he says, for I too, he goes on, 
in Kings and says, however, in a particular matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. So here's Naaman. He gets healed and immediately he realizes God is the God of Israel. I'm under authority. I'm worshiping nobody but him. And he's thinking, I've got to go back to put myself back under the authority that God has called me to be a part of because the Lord has been with me. And he immediately thinks, oh crud, how am I going to do this? Look at what he says. However, in a particular matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master, the king of Aram, goes into the temple of Rimon to worship. And I, as his right-hand man, bow in the temple of Rimon. When I bow in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord pardon your servant in this manner, or in this matter. So he said to him, go in peace. He doesn't say he's going to worship the God in Rimon. That's not what he says. He says, when I go in with the king, I'm going to bow. And I'm not afraid to tell the king, I'm not bowing to your God. I'm bowing because you have authority over my life. Man, if Christians could learn this, if we could learn how to talk like that, it would be so much better. If we could learn to say, I can be under authority. I can come under the authority, but I don't give you the authority of God to come under your authority. But I'm willing to come under. That's what Christians do. It's what we should do. It's not that we deny who God is. It's we look at someone and say, okay, yeah, I'm willing to take a knee, but it's not for the same reason you think. When I take a knee, I'm going to be talking to Jesus. I'm going to be talking to Yahweh, not Remnant. Just so you know. Just be aware. And Elisha says, okay, go in peace. That's messy, folks. That, that is super messy. We would look at that and say, what a traitor. He's bowing to the God of Remnant. But why? Oh, there's the question. Who do we go to? Why do we go? Well, he was going there because he was submitting to an authority. He wasn't going there to worship. See, we live in America where everything's about overthrowing authority. Everything's about independence. This Naaman realized that everyone under him was dependent on him. And he wanted to be careful that he didn't try to go back and just overthrow his nation and cost everyone else. And you think, well, how could we do this? Missionaries have been doing it for years. There are tons of missionaries who smuggle Bible into countries and they're asked, do you have any Bibles? And they go, nope. I don't have any Bibles. Well, what are all these books here that we can't read the language of and, or that, you know, these boxes? Oh, they're just boxes of books. Were they, were they wrong? Should they go to hell for lying? No, because they're appealing to a higher authority. They're appealing to a higher authority. You don't stand in the place of God. And so, no, no, we're taking them in. Be careful with that mentality because sometimes we use that to do some really wicked things, but that's not what Naaman is doing here. And we could learn a lesson or two from Naaman in this circumstance. Peter says this, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and temporary residents to abstain from fleshly desires that war against you. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. That's what Naaman was saying. I need to conduct myself honorably now against the people that don't believe in God. Because I believe in God now. I'm one of you. Now i got to figure out how to conduct myself honorably with them. 
So that in a case where they speak against you as those who do what is evil, they will, by observing your good works, glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, I believe that someday my king in Aram is going to be visited by God. He's going to visit him somehow. He's going to, to reach him. And when that happens, I want him to think about me and how I lived for Yahweh. Then it goes on and it says, Submit to every human authority because of the Lord. It doesn't say submit to every human authority for your own skin. It doesn't say submit to every human authority so you can have what you want, so things work out well. No, do it because Jesus did it. Jesus was crucified by all the authorities. The Romans agreed, the Jewish Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes agreed. Everybody agreed, kill that guy. He submitted to all the authority. And then he came back to dead to say, nanny, nanny, boo-boo, you don't have authority. That's what he did. And then it comes and he goes, look at this. Whether to the emperor or the supreme authority or to governors or those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and praise those who do what is good. For it is the Lord's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. And the good thing to do is to learn how to come under authority. You got to learn how to do it. The first commandment with a promise in the Old Testament, what is it? Honor your mother and father so it might go well with you in the land in which you live. You want it to go well in your house? Figure out how to obey mom and dad. It'll go much better for you, I promise. You won't get beatings. You won't get whipped. You won't get timeouts. You won't. Now, do we do that? No, we're constantly looking to be God and overthrow the authority in our lives so we can get what we want. It goes on to say this in Thessalonians. Paul writes, Therefore encourage one another and build each other up as you're already doing. Now we ask you, brothers, to give recognition to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you, and to regard them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we exhort you, brothers, warn those who are irresponsible, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone, because this takes a while, right? God's been working on you a while. Been working on me a long time. I, I got still a lot of work to do. See to it that one, no one repays evil to, for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for another and for all. Rejoice always. Pray constantly. Give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That's what Naaman, that's what his slave girl, that's what his servants did. He goes on and says, After Naaman had traveled a short distance from Elisha, Gehazi, Okay, the attendant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, my master has let this Aramean Naaman off lightly by not accepting from him what he brought. I got some merch to sell. We didn't make any money off this concert. We got we to go get some cash. Like, he's got all kinds of money. It's right there. I mean, he brought it with him. Like, what are we doing? It's going to help the prophets. It's going to help me. We're gonna, I can help people out goes on, as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and ask, is everything all right? Commanders of armies don't get out of chariots and humble themselves to go meet servants of prophets. That's not normal. He is humbling himself to be, man, something must be wrong. I want to find out what it is. I just want to be a servant. 
And then it says, Gehazi said, it's all right. My master has sent me to say, I have just now discovered that two young men from the sons of the prophet have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them 70 pounds of silver and two changes of clothes. You know what? Gehazi's master absolutely, absolutely told him to do this. Who's his master in this moment? Same. His master is money. And his master told him, go get some. So he's actually prophesying here. My master told me to come get some money. Yeah, your master did. And your master's not Elisha, and it's not Yahweh. But Naaman insisted, please accept 150 pounds. My gosh. Like, oh, no, no, no. I want, I want to give the biggest blessing I can. And he urged Gehazi and then packed 150 pounds of silver in two bags with two changes of clothes. Naaman gave them to the two of his young men who carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the gifts from them and stored them in the house. Then he dismissed the men and they left. Why? Because he doesn't want Elisha to see the men. He puts the money away where nobody can see it, right? He exposes his heart. He did this for himself. He wasn't for other people. And this guy has been incredibly generous. God's going to hold Naaman's generosity in high regard. The problem was Naaman gave it to the wrong person. It's not Naaman's fault. That's the person's fault who took it. And there's a lot of that that goes on in our modern Christianity. We are giving to things we should not give to. You often will give to charities and have no idea how much of the actual percentage of that money actually goes to the people on the ground. You don't even check it. And God says never Never give out of compulsion. Don't do it. Don't give because you feel like compulsion. Like people, no, be like, nope, need to pray about it, need to think about it, need to do some reflection, then I'll let you know. That's how Christians are supposed to give. Goes on, it says this. Gehazi came and stood by his master. Where did you go, Gehazi? Elisha asked him. Your servant didn't go anywhere, he replied. Where did you go? Who did you go to? I didn't go nowhere. I was right here the whole time. But Elisha questioned him, wasn't my spirit there when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Oh, dude, that had to sting. Like God sees. You think God doesn't look, he sees. He sees. Is it, is it a time to accept money and clothes, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and auction, male and female slaves? Is it time to accept or are we supposed to be giving? Is it a time to be stockpiling or is it a time to give freely? Well, as you've been freely given, you freely, you re freely receive, you freely give. Therefore, Naaman's skin disease will cling to you and your descendants for forever. So Gehazi went out from the presence diseased as white as snow. You wanted money and you got way more than you bargained for. And anyone who tells you, anyone who has incredible wealth will tell you that with that comes a weight that can crush you. The number of people that come into money or have money and stay married and their kids don't go bonkers and is so small. I'm not saying God doesn't create rich people. He does. He absolutely does. And there are righteous, good, wealthy people in the world. But man, is it dangerous. Matthew says this, while Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon, a man had a serious skin disease. A woman approached him with an alabaster jar of very expensive fragrant oil. She poured it on his head, and he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a noble thing for me. 
They're in the house of someone who has had a serious skin disease. Name it, right? Saint, Saint, and he says, you will always have the poor with you, but you don't always have me. By pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she has prepared me for burial. Then he goes on to say, I assure you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told in memory of her. Do you realize we have very little record of what any of the disciples did? Very little. But this woman's record is written down. So no matter how small of a thing you do for God, he remembers, he sees. When you go to him and you give yourself to him, God remembers. And then it goes on and it says, Then one of the twelve, the man called Gehazi, I mean Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they weighed out 30 pieces of silver for him. And from that time, he started looking for an opportunity to betray him. Money will trap you every time. Be careful. Be very careful with wanting to pursue fame and money and all those things. Pursue the Lord. Let him take care of the rest. Do the simple things that he tells you to do to stay clean, to wash yourself, because you're so grateful that he's already cleaned you. You just do a temporary washing every once in a while to get the filth off the outside because he's cleaned all the filth on the inside for you. All our responsibility is to get the filth off the outside. I mean, that's a really good deal if you think about it because it's really hard to clean the inside. He goes on, he says... In Hebrews, it says, actually, I'm going to skip that. In Luke, when Jesus came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, as usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. What's he reading? Where did he go to? Did he go up and say, hello, I'm Jesus, listen to me? No, he's like, no, let me tell you what I wrote a couple hundred years ago. I'm just going to read what I wrote a couple hundred years ago through Isaiah. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the year of jubilee. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone on the synagogue were fixed on him, because they recognized he was reading a messianic scroll and saying, God has sent me to tell you this, which then they went, wait, are you saying what we think you're saying? You're saying you're the Messiah. So everybody's like, okay. He began saying to them, today as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're looking. It's been fulfilled. I am the Messiah. They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, wait a minute, isn't this Joseph's son? He's not Joseph's son. He was born of the Holy Spirit. Joseph and Mary didn't have sex. He's not Joseph's son. Sorry. And then it goes on. Then he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Doctor, heal yourself. So we all have heard that took place, and we've all heard what took place in Capernaum, do here in your own hometown also. He said, I assure you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown, but I say to you, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's day when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, while a great famine came over all the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of those believing Israelite widows, no. He was sent to a widow at Zarephath of Sidon. Passed over you and went to the lost. 
those who don't know. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had serious skin diseases, yet not one of them was healed. Only Naaman the Syrian, Assyrian, when they heard this, everyone in the synagogue, there it is again, was enraged. They got up, drove him out of town, brought him to the edge of the hill that was, their town was built on, intending to hurl him off a cliff. He brought up this whole story of Naaman and the story of Elijah, and they're like, yep, we're throwing him off the cliff. This is not what we want to hear. We want a Messiah that's going to come for us, to make us good, to give us riches, to overthrow the Romans. We do not want a Messiah who's going around sending us out to help everybody else. They knew it, and they're ready to kill him for it. How dare you say these things? But he passed through the crowd and went on his way. Let me ask you, where are you going on your way? Where are you going to go? Where do we go when we find ourselves in the midst of what we find ourselves in our lives, in our country, in our world, when we do mission trips and we find ourselves in another country? Whatever you find yourself, will you go to the Lord's site? Will you go to him? Or will you continue to try all the ways that you need to try to try to get God to respond to you? Listen, God wants to respond. He's given you all of this to know exactly how he wants to respond in your life. This is a precious gift. If you know this, you can see all the responses of God. And you know what? Not a single widow, not a single widow made it out of Israel. Many died of starvation. Many died of starvation. But one widow was saved. Is that enough for you? Are you willing to be your master's slave and obey him and live where God's called you to live and suffer how he's called you to suffer because you know that there's a new heaven and a new earth, that there's a resurrection, that it's worth it, that there is no other God? Because that's exactly what the Bible from beginning to end says. And if you don't know him, God is telling you right now, come to me. Jesus says, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. Quit going to all the other stuff in your life. Stop chasing money. Stop chasing relationships. Come to me. That's where you go. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time. Just to continue to read and know you. Lord, I thank you for how your word is so accurate, that it speaks so clearly and so intimately to us. Lord, these aren't my words. These are your words. Your words to your people and those who are, you are calling to be your people. And Lord, I pray that they would respond. Anyone joining online, anyone here, Lord, I pray that we would respond to you like Naaman responded. Like the widow at Zarephath with Elijah responded. We respond to you like the centurion responded. We'd, we'd respond to you like the slave girl that found herself in Aram, that we would respond to you that way instead of chasing what we want like Gehazi and Judas and finding nothing but misery. Lord, I pray that if anyone here has not gone to you once and for all and surrendered their life and just said, I'm done, I pray today would be the day. 
They would put a marker in the sand that on this day, I said, yes, I'm going to Yahweh saves, to Yeshua, who is Jesus. And Lord, for those of us who know you, I pray that we would gather confidence to know that you see us and that we can go to you and trust you with our lives. We pray in your name, amen.